Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 8, Exodus chapters 8 and 9. Last week, we saw the plagues, or better, strokes, against Egypt begin. And the opening volley was that the Nile River was turned to blood. And as we discussed the Hebrew term for blood, dam, D-A-M, also denoted the color red. And it meant blood-like. So the water in the Nile almost certainly was not real blood, but rather it was blood-red color. It could have been something like a very severe red tide, which, by the way, we're having on the west coast of Florida right now. And the reason for us to conclude that it was not actual blood is that it affected the Hebrews just as it did the Egyptians. Okay, The water stayed bloody red for a full week. Even stored water turned rancid and red. And a good portion of the Egyptians and Hebrews would have died if they had absolutely no water whatsoever to drink for a week. Uh, this event is pictured as a great wonder. Right? Not as an event of destruction and death. So apparently by filtering the Nile water, most of the silt or red algae, whatever it was, could be removed making it drinkable. However, the condition of the Nile also had the effect of killing off the fish, which undoubtedly had something to do with the form of the next stroke, frogs. It's not that frogs were unusual for the Nile, it's that there were so many, and that they moved quickly away from their normal habitat, the pools and the puddles next to the Great River, and into people's homes. The putrid water was at least partly due, uh, partly rather the cause of the great frog infestation. And we'll find as we move along that each of these plagues occurred as a natural progression that we might normally find in nature as cause and effect. In other words, just as the water of the Nile became ill, Right? and resulted in killing off much of the life that the Nile supported, so the effect was to drive the frogs out of the Nile. And when at Moses' command the frogs died, we read of the Egyptians collecting them in great heaps, which decayed and set up a stench, says, all over the land. Well, what usually happens in nature when we have decay? Insects come to feed on it. And that's what we'll see next. Now just to be clear, I don't want to paint a picture that what we have here is some totally natural phenomenon and coincidence working together with a nice Bible story wrapped around it. Okay, Rather, it's that God used natural phenomenon taken to an extreme level and brought about it at Moses' command. Okay. This is typically the way the Lord seems to work. 
Even at the end of days, when we read of mountains coming blazing out of the skies, and of the sun burning ten times brighter, all right, ten times hotter, we're undoubtedly reading of enormous meteors or comets striking the earth, as, by the way, has happened before. All, right? All natural things, All right, but at a level never before known, so as to upset nature's delicate balance and cause catastrophic destruction. Now we see God speak to Moses again. and He tells Moses to tell Aaron, Moses' prophet, to use Moses' shepherd's staff and strike the dust of the land with it. This is the third plague. And it is also the last plague of the first set of plagues. That is, previously we talked about this structure of the plagues consisting of three sets. Each set consisting of three plagues. Three times three equals nine. With the tenth plague actually being the judgment right, for not giving in to all the other demands to free Israel. And notice that as with all three sets of plagues, the third and last plague of each set comes unannounced to the Pharaoh. That is, we don't see here that Jehovah tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. Rather, he simply instructs Moses to inflict the plague without warning. It's almost as though in each of the three sets of plagues that Pharaoh refusing to give in to the second plague of each set brought two punishments, two plagues. With the second plague, Pharaoh is warned, and then the punishment occurs, and then another punishment occurs. Two warnings, three plagues. Anyway, upon striking the dust of the land, gazillions of gnats, sometimes it's rendered lice, swarmed the land. Some say it may have been mosquitoes. These insects were apparently not unknown to the Egyptians, although I can't verify it. I suspect by their description that they were a variety of super tiny insect that were very much like what we in the South call noceums. Right? Having been to Egypt, I can tell you that they most definitely have them there. It seems that these little bloodsuckers aren't much bigger than a grain of dust, but they're all teeth. Okay, Because they can get inside anything and bite you in places I don't even want to talk about. All right? I mean, the insects also attacked the animals. Now, there's nothing here that says that the attack of the Egyptian noceums all right, was deadly. But it must have been irritating beyond their wildest nightmare. Right? And I remind you it affected the Hebrews as well. So we can, sit, we can set aside any thought that these insects were of themselves deadly. And Pharaoh again turns to, the, to his magicians to try and discredit Moses and his God. But this time, they couldn't reproduce what God had done. The extent of their demonic abilities were now exhausted. And thankfully so, because remember, all that his magicians had been able to do up to this point was mimic 
what God had done, and that meant add to whatever the plague was and make it worse. So they acknowledged to Pharaoh that this is the work of God. Quite an admission. Because it tells Pharaoh that this is a God that he can't order around and who is very powerful and can do things they can't. But the magicians are also saying that this was not the work of Moses and Aaron. In other words, by the Egyptian way of thinking, Moses and Aaron were Hebrew magicians. And up to now, it seemed to be a battle of Egypt's sorcerers against the Israelite sorcerers. That's how they saw it. And the Pharaoh's sorcerers basically said, it's not our fault. It's not a fair fight. They didn't lose to Moses and Aaron. They were directly defeated by the Hebrew God. This is the sense of their statement. This is the finger of God. Further, the Hebrew word translated God here is Elohim. That is, the magician said, surely this is the work of Elohim. And Elohim is a somewhat generic word that means God or goddess. Right? A divine ruler of some kind. Now, when a Hebrew speaks of Elohim, usually he is speaking specifically about God Almighty, Yehovah. But in this case, when it's the words of the Egyptian sorcerers being quoted, it's not like they understood or knew the Hebrew God, Yehovah, nor were they giving him his due honor. They just knew that this unknown God, this Elohim of the Hebrews, was the one who caused the insects to come and swarm, and that they and their Egyptian Elohims, the Egyptian gods, seemed to have no power to either imitate this miracle nor stop it. And amazingly, even this frightening admission of their powerlessness in the face of this Hebrew god failed to sway Pharaoh. This leader cared not for his people. He didn't care about his nation's well-being. He cared only for his own personal power and pride. And even more, Pharaoh now thoroughly understood, had there been any doubt at all, that he was doing battle more with God than with Moses. And had there ever been the slightest ignorance of this reality up to this point, it was gone now. Pharaoh was fully accountable for his actions. Well, Yehovah again speaks to Moses as he sends the demand once more to Pharaoh to free his people. And interestingly, it seems that we've seen some of the circumstances surrounding this coming forth plague before. God tells Moses to go confront Pharaoh where he goes to the water, meaning where he goes to the Nile. Now this must certainly have been the same place Moses waited for Pharaoh before that first stroke, when the Nile was turned blood red. And the consequences for not freeing Israel will be another attack of insects. But there's a very important difference now. This stroke, the fourth, is also the first stroke of the second set of strokes. And this begins a time when only the people of Egypt will feel its effects. Not the Hebrews. God says, but I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people live. And yes, I will distinguish between 
my people, your people, Pharaoh. Now these insects were a known and dreaded species of fly, right? Called by the locals dog flies. Okay? They were a real problem, particularly as concerned livestock. They tended to fasten themselves to moist areas on the animal, in the corners of their eyes, all right, or down in their nostrils, all right, and they deposit their eggs there in severe inflammation, up to and including blindness. Um, even death was the result. And of course, as we're all too familiar with, flies bring diseases with them that affect humans as well. We are told that these flies simply took over the land. So as with all the other plagues, this was not a new phenomenon. These dog flies showed up from time to time. But what was different was the intensity of their attack and their number. And they came at Moses' command. But by far the most perplexing matter for Pharaoh and his magicians and the Egyptian people had to be that these dog flies only infested Egyptian homes and Egyptian people and Egyptian livestock. The Israelites were left unscathed. Now, while God had certainly made his point that he sees Israel as separate and apart from Egypt, he couldn't have made the relationship between the Hebrew and the Egyptian people any easier for this to happen. I mean, it's human nature that suffering should be equally shared, right? One can imagine that the Egyptian citizens became pretty angry that the Israelites stood above this woe of flies that killed the livestock from which no Egyptian, not even Pharaoh, could seem to escape. You know, people just hated that one group thinks they're special. Especially if those people are not part of that group. And this is the situation for believers today. I mean, who among us have not been told at one time or another that we're pretty arrogant to think that we have a special place with God because of our belief in Messiah, but they don't? How often have we heard that Christians and Messianic Jews seem to think that we have something available to us, wisdom, love, blessing, favor, eternal life, that others don't. And it's near impossible to explain to non-believers that it's not that we're somehow better than them, because we're not. It's because of our trust and faith in Yeshua. It's because of that faith that God has separated us from them. He distinguishes those who trust him from everybody else. That principle and pattern is the very essence of salvation. And it's demonstrated here in Exodus. It's the reason that the world has always hated Israel. And it's the reason that the world increasingly hates the church. And it always will. The church, I'm afraid, has become so sensitive to this hatred, especially as of late, with the ideological war that has erupted with Islam, that many are going out of their way to say faith in pretty much any spiritual being is a good and valid faith. Essentially pronouncing that God makes no distinction 
among people or nations. The world's reasoning is you cannot simultaneously have distinction with tolerance. After all, isn't the church supposed to be all about unity? I mean, distinction and tolerance are mutually exclusive. Therefore, say a loud and growing body of church leaders, it must be that we all worship the same God. Whether we call him Allah, Buddha, Hindi, Yehovah, it's just that these poor misguided persons don't know that they're actually worshiping the Savior Jesus of Nazareth. Now if you believe that, then I suppose you also believe that poor Pharaoh was actually worshiping the God of the Hebrews. And not his own Egyptian gods. That he was just ignorant of his name. Let me warn you as strongly as I can. God distinguishing one from another is all that separates you and I from an eternity apart from him. That's it. And that distinction is based on one thing alone. Trust in the Savior he has provided. Yeshua of Nazareth. Now as nice and warm and fuzzy and peaceful and loving as it sounds to embrace all gods as the God, do not buy into this new age tolerance. All right, that's rapidly being adopted by way too many, all right, even within the church. So Pharaoh calls to Moses and Aaron and says, go ahead, gather your people, have your festival, make your sacrifices to your God, but do it in the land. That is, don't leave Egypt. Moses, all too aware that the Egyptian people with their sick livestock and themselves covered with these dogfly bites, aren't particularly happy with the Hebrews right about now. Right? And he tells Pharaoh that if they go, if they hold their festival locally, the Egyptians will erupt. Instead, Moses says, let us go three days journey into the wilderness, the Egyptians um, uh, rather, let, let's go three days' journey into the wilderness, into the desert, all right, and 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 have this festival out of the sight of the Egyptian people. Pharaoh says, "Okay, okay, already. Just don't go too far. But please, go plead with your God to call off the attack of the dog flies." All right. Now, though it's pretty hard to discern from our English translations. Pharaoh has taken a pretty significant step here. In verse 28 of, of uh, chapter 8, the more typical Bibles in verse 24 of the older Hebrew Bible structure, Pharaoh tells Moses that he can take the Israelites and sacrifice to God or to the Lord or Adonai or something like that. Actually, the original Hebrew says, Yehovah. Not Lord, not God, and not Adonai. Okay. Pharaoh calls the Hebrew God by his personal formal name. Okay. That's quite a concession. Okay. There, there's actually some respect growing here by Pharaoh towards Jehovah. Now further understand that what the Hebrews would be sacrificing, oxen, cattle, 
among other item, uh, animals, were divine to the Egyptians. If the Hebrews were to kill and burn up a bull, which they most certainly would have, inside of the Egyptians, let's remember, a bull is one of the Egyptians' highest deities, it would have been a grievous offense. And indeed, the Egyptians would have sought terrible retribution from them. Notice that Moses did not mention to Pharaoh exactly what those sacrificial animals might be that he would use out there in the wilderness. He just said that for sure the Egyptian people would stone them for doing it. Unfortunately, that still didn't stop Pharaoh from reacting just as he had previously. As soon as the dog flies left the next day, Pharaoh retracted his promise. Let's move on to Exodus chapter 9. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Then Adonai said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Here is what Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go and persist in holding on to them, the hand of Adonai is on your livestock in the field, on the horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, and flocks, and will make them suffer a devastating illness. But Adonai will distinguish between Egypt's and Israel's livestock. Nothing belonging to the people of Israel will die. Adonai determined the exact time by saying, Tomorrow Adonai will do this in the land. The following day Adonai did it. All the livestock of Egypt died. But not one of the animals belonging to the people of Israel died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the people of Israel had died. Nevertheless, Pharaoh's heart remained stubborn and he didn't let the people go. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of ashes from a kiln and let Moshe throw them into the air before Pharaoh's eyes. They will turn into a fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become infected sores on men and animals throughout Egypt. So they took ashes from a kiln, stood in front of Pharaoh, and threw them into the air, and they became infected sores on men and animals. The magicians couldn't even stand in Moses' presence because of the sores, which were on them as well as other Egyptians. But Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted so that he didn't listen to them, just as Adonai had said to Moses. Adonai said to Moshe, Get up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, here is what Adonai says. Let my people go so that they can worship me. For this time, I will inflict, inflict my plagues on you yourself and on your officials and your people so that you will realize that I am without equal in all the earth. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with such severe plagues, you would have been wiped off the earth. But it's for this very reason that I've kept you alive to show you my power and so that my name may resound throughout all the, throughout the whole earth. Since you are still setting yourself up against my people and not letting them go, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause a hailstorm so heavy that Egypt has had nothing like it from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, send in hurry to bring indoors all your livestock and everything else you have in the field. For hail will fall on every human being, an animal left in the field that hasn't been brought home, and they will die. Whoever among Pharaoh's servants feared 
when Adonai had said his slaves, uh, pardon me, whoever among Pharaoh's servants feared what Adonai had said, had his slaves and livestock escape into the houses, but those who had no regard for what, for what Adonai said left their slaves and livestock in the field. Adonai said to Moses, reach out your hand toward the sky so that there will be hail in all the land of Egypt falling on the people, animals, and everything growing in the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses reached out his staff toward the sky and Adonai sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. Adonai caused it to hail on the land of Egypt. It hailed and fire flashed up with the hail. It was terrible. Worse than any hailstorm in all of Egypt since it became a nation. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the hail struck everything in the field, people and animals. And the hail struck every plant growing in the field and broke every tree there. But in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I've sinned. Adonai is right. I and my people are in the wrong. Intercede with Adonai. We can't take any more of this terrible thunder and hail. And I will let you go. You will stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to Adonai. The thunder will end and there won't be any more hail so that you can know that the earth belongs to Adonai. But you and your servants, I know you still won't fear Adonai, God. The flax and barley were ruined because the barley was ripe and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and buckwheat was not ruined because they came up later. Moses went out of the city away from Pharaoh and spread his hands to Adonai. The thunder and the hail ended. The rain stopped pouring down on the earth. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ended, he sinned still more by making himself hard-hearted, he and his servants. Pharaoh was made hard-hearted, and he didn't let the people of Israel go, just as Adonai had said through Moses. Pharaoh's heart has remained hard. Now let's recall that this hardening was a combination of Pharaoh beginning with a rebellious and hardened heart and then God intervening to further harden Pharaoh from time to time. And for what purpose would God do this? He tells us directly why. That Egypt and Israel, the people, the common folk, would see all these signs and wonders. It was important to God that every one of these nine plagues come to pass. Pharaoh was just God's tool to show the people of Egypt the power of Yehovah and the worthlessness of their own false gods and religion. Well, they ain't seen nothing yet. We're approaching the halfway point of the signs and wonders being manifested and they're about to take a jump in intensity. Jehovah sends Moses back to Pharaoh with essentially the same message as before. Free my people. My people. Remember that we have learned that a particular Hebrew word is used when God is referring to the nation of Hebrews and not to any other group of people. That word is ami or amim. When the scriptures refer to non-Hebrews in the same context, it uses the Hebrew word goyim. 
the word in verse 1, send, send my people free, is Ami. The Lord is dividing and separating the Goyim, the Gentiles, from the Hebrews, the Amin. The next plague, the next stroke, for Pharaoh once again refusing God's demand, is a terrible sickness upon the livestock in the field. This stroke is the fifth, the second plague of the second set of plagues. This entire second set of plagues is reserved only for the Egyptians as opposed to the first set which affected everybody, Hebrews included. So the livestock that will be struck down will only be the animals belonging to the Egyptians. Now depending on your version, verse 3 will say horses, donkeys, and camels will be among those affected, and then your Bibles will say either herds, flocks, or oxen, or, uh, flocks, oxen or sheep will be struck as well. The Hebrew here is Bahar. Okay, B-A-Q-A-R, Bakar, and Tson, T-S-O-N. Bakar can mean oxen, but here it's taken to mean cattle. For cattle were to the Egyptians what sheep were to the Israelites. It was their favorite and most farmed source of meat. So Tson can mean sheep, goats, pretty much any kind of small livestock. It can even mean small or young cows. But it specifically refers to animals eaten for food. In fact, it likely means in this context all of your small uh, small livestock, every kind, sheep, goats, pigs, young cattle. So likely the essence of the statement in verse 3 is every kind of livestock used for food that the Egyptians own, large and small. What is not included in this are wild animals. Apparently they hadn't been affected because they were owned by God. Now verse 6 tells us that all the livestock that belonged to the Egyptians died, but none of the livestock of the Hebrews died. When Pharaoh heard rumors that the Israelites' animals had survived in absolute disbelief, he sent officials to see if this was true, and it was verified. Yet Pharaoh still wouldn't relent. Now, as an aside, could it be that all, as the scriptures say, all of the livestock of the Egyptians died? Well, there's nothing in the wording to indicate otherwise. Sometimes we get good indications in certain scriptures, certain passages, that all is just an expression. Right, that all or forever or every doesn't really mean 100%. Okay, it just indicates the sense of the vast majority, almost all. However, in this case, all seems to indicate all, as in every last one of Egyptians' livestock, large and small, perish. Now, what would have happened is that the Egyptians probably confiscated some of the Israelites' livestock and then purchased some additional stock from surrounding nations. Okay. The world at that time was far more connected than most people today realize. Trade among nations was an everyday affair. Okay. But no matter, this was a humiliating and devastating blow to the Egyptian people, and their food supply was greatly affected, as was their economy. Now in verse 8, we come to the unannounced sixth plague. This is the third plague of the second set of plagues. That is, Pharaoh received no warning. 
It's as if each time Pharaoh refuses that second demand in a set, he gets two plagues as a response. Now what I'd really like you to begin to, to drink in is that beginning in Genesis 1, we see God establish patterns and types and principles. God is a God of order. He is not a God of chaos or, or serendipity. The scripture lays down patterns and types for us so that in our lives we can reasonably know the general nature of how our God responds to us and to various circumstances. If this was not so, then history, including the history being given to us in the Bible, would be utterly useless, except as a curiosity. Something just to satisfy our love of knowledge. If history did not show us God's patterns and principles, and if we did not see them constantly repeated throughout the Bible, then we'd have a pretty good reason to doubt a very important pillar to our faith. God never changes. There is not even a shadow of turning in him. These patterns are great proof and reassurance of Jehovah's unchanging nature, and it means we can be confident that even in the last days of the world, as it plays out, will be within the same patterns that he established from creation. But it also means that as we learn in our study of Torah, these principles and governing dynamics that he's created, we are to take within the New Testament in that same context. It is the Torah where these patterns and principles of God are established. It's in the New Testament where they're brought to a fuller meaning by Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, this sixth plague that's brought upon Egypt without warning are painful boils, blisters that affect both man and beast. What kind of beast? It's not clear. The Hebrew word is behemah. It can mean livestock or it can mean every type of living animal. Verses 8 and 9 say that Moses and Aaron were to be actively involved in making this plague occur. They were by their own hands to take soot, throw it into the air where it would disperse and land on living creatures and cause these painful pustules to arise. Not only could Pharaoh's magicians not imitate this miracle, they were afflicted with the boils. But the Hebrew people were exempt. Now plagues of boils upon man and beast were a known happening, and they occurred for reasons unknown from time to time. There are many known diseases that cause terrible blisters to occur. Many of the poxes that we're familiar with, like measles, but also terribly deadly things like Ebola. It does not appear, though, that this was a deadly disease. Rather, it just brought great discomfort. But a plague of boils that affected only the Egyptian people and animals and not the Hebrews, one that was so extensive and catastrophic, was unheard of. It was unnatural. Now, when I hear of this description, of fine dust, soot, 
being thrown up into the air and dispersed by the wind and it's contact with the skin of man and beast causing blistering. I cannot help but think of things like mustard gas and of the gassing of the Kurdish people by Saddam Hussein and other terrible weapons developed by mankind. Now while I don't think that this sixth plague is some veiled prophecy of the chemical weapons of our day, I do think that one is a satanic counterfeit of the other. These horrible 21st century weapons that can cause such agony and destruction have not been wrought by God, but by the evil one for the indiscriminate killing of men. It was for the salvation of God's people that God used this fine dust to cause pain only to those who held God's people as their slaves, that they might know God and repent and let his people go. Now, without going into detail, the scriptures in verse 12 tell us that Pharaoh's heart remained strong-willed and hardened, and despite the pain, even he was not exempted from, just as God had told Moses it would be. Well, Jehovah had attacked the Egyptians' wealth. He had attacked their livelihoods, their animals, their pride, their bodies. And he'd laid low their gods and these gods' priests. Now, as bad as the first six plagues had been, they were little as compared to the ferocity of the next set of three. And God gives Pharaoh in verse 14 a grave warning that this time I will set my blows upon your heart. Now the word used here for heart is different from version to version. Some say person, others say self instead of heart. The complete Jewish Bible says you. The Hebrew word here is lab. And its essence is that of the inner self, a man's soul, where our conscience and our emotions and our wills and our sense of self resides. In other words, what was about to come would not just affect Pharaoh's anger and stubbornness, it would finally penetrate that thick head and skin of his. It would attack his inner being. It would hurt far deeper than anything that had happened prior. The seventh plague, the first plague now of the third set, would be hail of a size and intensity never seen before in Egypt. Hail, you say, out in the desert? Sure. I was born and raised in the Mojave Desert of California. And in the middle of a 120 degree day, I've seen hail fall during a thunderstorm. It didn't last long. Okay. It was rare, happened only every few years. But in an intense thunderstorm, wind causes rain droplets to be carried upward into the higher, colder reaches of the atmosphere where it freezes. They're joined to other droplets and they form ice, and then they come down so fast that they hit the ground as blobs of hardened ice. That's hail. Of course, they melt almost immediately, but I have personally witnessed entire crops wiped out 
from a hailstorm in midsummer in 120 degree weather. Car windshields broken, roof damage. But verse 18 says, never in the history of Egypt had such hail fell as it was about to. It would occur even as intense lightning was happening. Fire from heaven, right? Lightning. Now back up in verse 15, God wants Moses and Aaron to make clear to Pharaoh that God had actually been holding himself back to this point. That he'd only sent plague strokes up to now that didn't bring wholesale destruction. Because if he had, Egypt and the people of Egypt would have been no more. And in verse 16, God says the reason he's done this is that not only that Israel might know him, but that throughout the land of Egypt, the people of Egypt would know him and remember him. This was no idle throw-in phrase to add a little drama. It might surprise you to know that up until a mere 35 years ago, Egypt was a majority Christian nation. And before that, from the time of the Roman Empire, even before Jesus, and on into the Middle Ages, Egypt was a center of Jewish religious authority and a center of Hebrew culture and learning. In fact, the city of Alexandria, Egypt, and its outskirts had Jewish colonies that numbered more than one million Jews. And today, we actually have had a lawsuit filed by some Egyptians demanding that Israel return with interest all that gold and other stuff they received from the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. Do you know that? For real. They've gone to the world court. The Egyptians remembered. Egypt has indeed been impressed by those plagues caused by Pharaoh's hardened heart. And they have remembered. And millions of Egyptians have entered eternity. Saved by Jesus Christ. And it's all laid out right here in Exodus. In fact, look in verse 20. Here we see that as a result of the first six plagues, some number of the Egyptian people had indeed learned that this God of the Hebrews was not to be trifled with. Okay. They now knew the power of Jehovah, and many brought their livestock indoors and into caves and in other shelter and brought their field workers in from the fields and into their homes to protect them from the coming hail and lightning. Yet, as always, many more followed Pharaoh's mindset and ignored the warning. Even though about once a month, over the past six months, these terrible calamities had occurred, four of which had come without any warning. And we're reminded in verse 26 that in the land of Goshen, land of Goshen, way up here in the northern part of Egypt, which they call Lower Egypt, go figure, that region of Egypt that's set apart for the Hebrews, the hail did not fall, nor did the lightning strike. 
The Hebrews did not experience devastation, only the Egyptians. People were killed. Livestock were killed and damaged. Trees were destroyed. The field crops were smashed. Most of them were lost. This time, even Pharaoh was moved. He called for Moses and Aaron and admitted, I have sinned. He asked Moses to plead with Jehovah to stop this terrible catastrophe. He said he wanted the Israelites to go, to leave. Of course, it wasn't that Pharaoh had taken God into his heart. It was only that he fully understood that Jehovah was real and powerful and that he feared the consequences of disobedience at this point. And Moses said as much in verse 30. Oh, you know, what monumental error it is to think that believing that God exists and complying with his demands out of fear of consequences is the basis for attaining righteousness and salvation. That ain't it. We must trust God. Take him into our hearts. Respond to him in obedience out of love and gratitude. And as the word says, even the de demons believe that God is. And they tremble before him. Even the demons obey God. Just as they did when Jesus ordered them out of a man and into a herd of pigs. You know, we're no different than Pharaoh and our demons if all we do is say, Oh, I believe in God. And follow his commands out of the fear of repercussions. We don't. Now in verses 31 and 32... We get a pretty good idea of the time of year that this hailstorm happened. Because we're told that the barley was in ears, that is in the ripening stage, and the flax was in buds just behind the development of the barley. But it says the wheat and the spelt, some think spelt is what we call buckwheat, others think it's rice, weren't devastated because they were in the earlier stages of their development. So this would have been about the end of January or the first of February, that kind of time frame when this hail happened. Well, despite the death, damage, economic disaster of the second, the seventh stroke, rather, Pharaoh went back on his word, of course, to free Israel the minute he saw the lightning and the hail stop. And verse 34 tells us that Pharaoh's servants, meaning his government officials and the citizens at large of Egypt, also hardened their hearts. But how would this have manifested itself upon the Hebrews? What did this general hardening of Egypt towards Israel mean for the Israelites? The same thing it means now. 3,300 years later. Irrational Hatred aimed at the Israelis, even though it means terrible hardship and calamity upon those who do the hating. Or as using the words the Bible uses, those who curse Israel will themselves be cursed. I mean, look at the Middle Eastern nations today. Those who hate Israel, those who curse Israel and try over and over to do away with Israel. Iraq's now an occupied territory. The Palestinians have 70% unemployment. 
70%. They live in terrible squalor without any hope at all. Egypt is a horribly poor nation. Iran sits on the edge of civil war and has the world lining up against it. Syria is a police state. All these nations can think of, day in and day out, is how to destroy the homeland of the Jews. That's all they live for. Okay. A Palestinian Arab friend of mine, Tass, who some of you have met, by the way, who's currently living in Gaza as a Christian missionary, told me that killing Jews and eradicating Israel is the driving force, the goal, behind every decision made by the Palestinians. It dominates their thoughts and their lives, even though it brings nothing but a life of poverty and deprivation. Why? Is it because the Israelis sit on some kind of wealth? Oil, minerals, precious metals? Israel doesn't have any of that. Do they have some enormous piece of land that the Middle Eastern Muslims need to spread out on? No. It's a Satan-driven hatred that brings nothing but self-destruction. But it's also a God-ordained consequence, inescapable for those who hate Israel, whether it was Pharaoh and Egypt in Moses' day or the Palestinians and the Iraqis and Arabs and most of the rest of the world today. And we Americans and those in the church are not exempted from this either. You and I have a choice, just as Pharaoh had a choice. Bless Israel or curse Israel. There's no neutrality. You know, it frightens me to my toes when I watch our president blister Israel for defending itself. It turns my stomach when Jewish leaders forcefully dispossess Jews from the very land Jehovah gave to them. It angers me red-faced when I hear church leaders condemn Israel inside with the Arabs. Equating Israel hunting down terrorist leaders with Palestinian homicide bombers that indiscriminately blow up crowded buses and pizzerias makes no sense to me. And this constant cry going out for even-handedness Translation, let's remove all the distinctions. Okay, There is no even-handedness when choosing between good and evil. Okay, For your own good, for the good of your family, for the good of this nation, I ask you to bless Israel and do not curse them. Okay, If you do not do this, then you're just like Pharaoh. Oh, you may well believe that God is. You just don't believe what he says. And it's going to lead to destruction. Next week we'll get into chapter 10.